Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, Halloween is just around the corner, but the real fright this year might be just the price of Halloween candy. With some boxes hitting $20 or more, it's enough to make anyone consider turning off the lights and pretending they're not at home. But don't worry, here at What She Said, I've got no tricks, just treats with an incredible lineup of amazing women. Here's what's coming up. First up, I'm honored to be joined by Meredith Preston McGee, Secretary General of the Global Center for Pluralism. In a world that feels increasingly divided, our conversation about the importance of pluralism and its role in building a more inclusive and harmonious society couldn't come at a more crucial time. As we brace ourselves for the winter months, it's important to arm ourselves with the right information to protect our families from common respiratory viruses. Dr. Christine Palmet, a family doctor in Toronto, is here on behalf of care to know to shed light on the latest developments in respiratory illness and how we can safeguard our health. Scarier than the price of Halloween candy is the slim pickings in Hollywood this week. But have no fear, Ann Brody is here with entertainment you won't want to miss, including a look at The Most Remote Restaurant, a two-star Michelin restaurant located in the Faroe Islands. Plus, all the light we cannot see on Netflix and more. Next, we have a checkup with Dr. Mandeep Johal, who will be discussing the impact of sugar on our teeth and overall health. With Halloween just around the corner, it's a timely reminder that it's all connected. And finally, I'm joined by Toronto comedian Tamara Chevon, who is celebrating her 10th anniversary in the world of stand-up comedy. Tamara has not only made a name for herself in the comedy community, but has also recently released a new comedy album titled Table Wine. Join me today for these captivating stories only on What She Said, right here on 105.9 The Region. In a world that feels increasingly divided, today's conversation couldn't have come at a more crucial time. I'm honored to have Meredith Preston McGee, Secretary General of the Global Center for Pluralism, joining me to discuss the importance of pluralism and the role it plays in building a more inclusive and harmonious society. The Global Center for Pluralism works tirelessly to advance positive responses to diversity with the belief that when we value our differences, our societies and people thrive. Meredith, I can't thank you enough for being with us here today. This is such a timely topic. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you start, please, by defining pluralism and explaining why it is so important, especially in today's global environment? Sure. Um, you know, pluralism feels like a big, uh, a big word and often something theoretical. I know um, a lot of people don't really feel like they can grasp it. But at its heart, it's really the positive response to diversity and difference in our societies. It's about belonging. It's about our own belonging and mutual recognition and respect of others and how we navigate that in every different aspect of our society, from media to governance, to just the way that we work together in our communities. 
It sounds so wonderful. And it sounds almost like utopia in a way. So is it possible? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think when we look at societies around the world, I couldn't point you to a purely pluralistic society. And so in many ways, this is aspirational. This is something we are trying to get to. And we're really not naive to understanding how difficult this is. It's difficult to deal with difference, to difference of opinion, difference of um, culture, needs, language, religion, um, perspectives on how life should be managed and run in our everyday lives. All of us struggle with how we ourselves engage with people who have different views than we do. But I think that in our current historical global moment, it's maybe harder than it's ever been. And, and you know, let's talk about that current political climate where we're seeing a lot of polarizing and divisive narratives, not to mention just flat out untruths, mistruths, uh, disinformation, misinformation. It's just, it goes on and on. So what alternatives can leaders and communities adopt to foster this more inclusive society? Well, I know you'll be posting this on social media, but I do think that um, social media is a challenge to us right now, that we're not, in fact, engaging with one another when we engage on social media. We're not, in fact, sitting down and having a conversation and listening to someone and really trying to understand what they think, why they think what they think, what they need, how they might see the world and experience the world differently. And if we did that, we could actually learn a lot about ourselves and about what our society needs to be better and richer. And I think when we do have those conversations, and I would argue that you and probably all of your listeners have those conversations in different moments in their lives, and they're transformative ones. But too often now, those kinds of discussions are rare when we're barraged by, as you say, divisive narratives online, misinformation, not knowing who to trust. I think the other thing I would say when I think about where pluralism does work, where we have seen really positive engagement, is that there is trust. There is a willingness to spend the time to create spaces where people can talk about these different things in ways where they're not necessarily feeling that there's going to be an attack at the end of the conversation, that they're able to explore differences together and come through that in a way that at the end of a discussion, everyone feels more like they belong. Everyone feels more like they recognize the person across the table for being a whole person and not just a stereotype of what social media may tell them that they are. And often on times online, I mean, I know I'm guilty of it, I will just block somebody and remove them from my feed because I don't want to hear what they're saying or or listen and it doesn't eliminate the person. It just takes them out of my social media feed. And it's addressed nothing in terms of the discourse that's happening out there uh, right now. So the excellent points. And, and so the center supports a lot of initiatives and projects that aim to build these more inclusive societies. So can you highlight some of these initiatives and the impact that they've had? Well, we work on a, a range of, of different programs. Now, we're, of course, a global organization that's based um, here in, in Canada, as you mentioned. We're in, we're in Ottawa. We're on unceded Algonquin territory here in Ottawa. Um, we do a lot of work trying to help societies actually measure 
pluralism and figure out how you make it visible so that people can figure out what is working in their societies and what's not. And so that can be everything from um, engaging uh, with Indigenous and Afro-descendant women leaders in Colombia who are using uh, traditional territorial knowledge, Indigenous knowledge to transform how people are understanding the peace agreement in Colombia and how that's being implemented and how it's affecting the communities um, who are really the most conflict affected and really the, the real leaders at the heart of the peace process in Colombia. Um, we do a lot of work on education. When you think also about how we're thinking about building skills for the next generation of leaders in our society to be able to engage with difference, to be able to engage with difference in this particularly polarized time, in this social media space. We need to build the muscles of young people to engage with these complicated conversations in a way that gets them through the other side, stronger as a collective society that's confident in its own difference and diversity. Diversity is a really beautiful, beautiful thing, but in a lot of places and spaces, what we see is that it has been weaponized and people see that as something dangerous that they don't want to engage in. So a lot of our work with educators, with education leaders, and with the entire ecosystem around an education space is to try to help people see that they can, they can lean into these conversations. But as I said earlier, that also requires a lot of trust building. And so a lot of these processes are not quick. There isn't an overnight solution for us to get across these, across these divisions. There is one other program that I think we're going to to speak about. So maybe I'll just um, uh, jump into it. Yeah, that's well, you're leading me right to it because that's my my next question. Uh, so the, the Global Center for Pluralism presents the Global Pluralism Award every two years. So can you tell us about the award and the impact it's having on promoting pluralism? Well, one of the reasons that we set up the award is that this is a huge topic that we're talking about, and it looks different in different places. And so we felt when we began as an organization that sometimes demonstrating pluralism is easier than defining it. So you can point to examples and say, this is a space in a community where, for example, history educators are coming together and saying, we want a trauma-informed, conflict-sensitive way to talk about our histories of conflict across different ethnic communities. And then other educators can look at that and see the possibilities in their own spaces. So we established the award. This is the fourth cycle that we're going into. So we're, we now have 40 laureates in order to amplify the incredible work around the world of individuals and organizations that are working to champion pluralism. So can you share some of the exam examples of the work that these laureates are doing and, and maybe share a couple of the nominees this year? Sure. So we have our 10 finalists and we're just in the process of announcing the three winners and we'll have a big um, ceremony with them in November here in Ottawa. This year, every year, it's a really diverse mix. But one of the things I'm um, excited about this year is that we have a really um, strong theme around peace and dialogue among all of our winners. And similarly, a really phenomenal um, group of women and organizations that are really working around empowerment of women and women's leadership in different spaces. So for one example, um, Esther Omam is a community peace builder, humanitarian and human rights defender from Cameroon, who has been working to facilitate dialogue between communities in Cameroon with young people and women across 
across religious divides and with the government and and some of the non-state armed actors in that conflict. And again, really crossing over so many of the different divides and divisions that Cameroon itself is really struggling with. And she's a real example of trying to weave those spaces together. Another, again, another woman, uh, phenomenal uh, young woman peace builder in uh, Lebanon, Leah Baroudi, uh, had founded an organization called March that works up in Tripoli in northern Lebanon and works across, again, across lines with very divided communities with really creative approaches. She set up a drama troupe with ex-combatants that works specifically on thinking through some of the different issues within the society through the arts. So again, it doesn't always have to be sitting down and having the tough conversation about the issue at a table. It can be through arts and culture. She set up a cafe to bring communities across divides together. And similarly, um, another of our um, of our laureates this year, Reform, is a Palestinian organization that's based in the West Bank, operates both in um, the West Bank and, and obviously Gaza's a particularly difficult for them to be operating in. They have operated in Gaza and continue to support work there as they can. And they, again, work on a range of different social cohesion and peace building activities across Palestinian society. I think one of the things that, that is really striking to me in the work that they do is recognizing that division is really endemic when you're in a conflict situation. It is hard to move across lines. So if you're a Palestinian refugee, or someone who's living inside the West Bank, you will have different experiences of the conflict itself. And so even across those sort of internal differences within Palestinian society, understanding differences that may be seen between um, young people and the older generation in Palestinian society, or gender differences and the importance of women as leaders and peacemakers within Palestinian society. So they work again on a range of different peace building and social cohesion activities that and are really building what I was describing before is these sort of community of trust, of building safe spaces where people can come across different divides and have these kinds of conversations and really support leaders within, within their own community. So we're really, really excited and really proud to be recognizing them this year. Okay, we're, we're going to take just a quick, quick commercial break uh, so we can come back and hear more from Meredith Preston McGee from the Global Center for Plural Pluralism. And we'll be right back. In the name of love, before you with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. All right, we're back with Meredith Preston McGee from the Global Center for Pluralism. And Meredith, can you, we were just talking about some of the incredible nominees that you have. And so can you walk us through how the nominees are selected and the role of the independent jury in this process? 
So we have a call for nominations um, at the beginning of the cycle, and that goes out around the world. So we really encourage listeners, if you can think of somebody in your community, watch our space. It's going to be coming up. We have an independent um, international jury that is currently chaired by Dr. Marwan Washer, um, former foreign minister of, of Jordan. There's a number of eminent people on the jury, and they spend a lot of time deliberating with um with a larger selection of, of a shortlist. We do an enormous amount of due diligence, including on, on the final 10, and we do in-person site visits to each to really get under the hood and, and ensure that they are exemplifying pluralism in all their areas of work. And, and you're, as a notable peace builder, what advice do you have for leaders and communities on how they can process pain and address injustice in a way that promotes pluralism? Well, I think one of the first things to say is that it is important to open these spaces for dialogue and discussion within your own communities and your own spaces. It's hard when you don't necessarily have a foundation of trust. And so finding leaders in with whom different actors feel that they can be authentic, that they can raise those voices, I would say try to do it offline. Try to have real human conversations in these moments. I would say pause and take a breath. It's important to acknowledge the trauma. I think it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes trauma is so intense that it's very difficult for you to acknowledge the trauma of others. It's hard in these moments to do that, and it won't happen overnight. And we need to continue to have these conversations. At a global level, we need to find a way of de-escalating this kind of rhetoric to ensure that grief is not being weaponized in terms of a space of vengeance, because that will really only continue a cycle of trauma, and it holds back dialogue. What we need right now more than anything is peacemakers to step into this space of leadership and be empowered to be leading these kinds of conversations in all of our spaces in Canada, certainly in Israel and Gaza and the wider region and around the world. Well, I know my audience and I know that there are a lot of peacemakers listening who would love to know more. Are there opportunities to volunteer with you, work with you? Well, there's certainly, we work with partners around the world, so there's definitely um, partnership opportunities. We don't um, take volunteers, um, unfortunately, but um, I would really encourage people to get in touch with us. Um, you go to our website, just pluralism.ca. Um, I didn't say the nicest things about social media, but you can follow us on Instagram, <laughs> or at least get in touch. Um, we really like having human conversations, so um, great if people want to want to get in touch with us directly. And I went on the website and I was down a rabbit hole. Very impressive uh, board that you have. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can share some of the people on the board because it is, there's a lot of gravitas there. Well, we were founded originally by the government of Canada and His Highness the Aga Khan. So we're very privileged that His Highness the Aga Khan um, is the chair of the board. Um, on the Canadian side, for your listeners, um, uh, the Right Honourable Adrian Clarkson, our former Governor General, of course, is on the board, as is um, the Right Honourable Beverly McLaughlin, the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So again, when you speak about women's leadership um, on, on your show, I think we're particularly privileged to have such phenomenal women leaders. And I would say that we're privileged to have you in Canada. So I'm thrilled to have uh, found you, and I can't thank you enough for joining me. So one more time, if you could share the website and maybe uh, the Instagram handle of the Global Center for Pluralism. Sure. We're at uh, pluralism.ca and uh, at Global Pluralism on Instagram and other social media. All right, Meredith, it's been a pleasure meeting you, but this will not be the last time. We're definitely going to talk again. Thank you for joining me today. All right. Thanks so much for having me.
As we brace ourselves for the winter months, it's crucial that we arm ourselves with the right information to protect our families from common respiratory viruses like influenza, RSV, and the ever-evolving strains of COVID-19. Today, we're joined by Dr. Christine Palme, a renowned family doctor with a bustling practice in Midtown Toronto, who is here on behalf of care to know to shed light on the latest developments in respiratory illness and how we can safeguard our health. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Palme. I'm truly delighted to be here. Thank you, Candace. So can you tell us about the current landscape of respiratory illnesses in Canada, particularly with the rise in COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations? Absolutely. So I feel uh, as per Game of Thrones, we're constantly saying in Canada, winter is coming. Uh, everybody is scared of Canadian winter that lasts up to 10 months. And I call it the unholy trinity, uh, the season of RSV, uh, influenza, and COVID. And I know that uh, my office is now bustling with uh, an upstroke in COVID cases, influenza cases. Uh, and the reality is, is that this is really uh, a difficult season for our medical system. We're already overburdened. And uh, when respiratory diseases increase in numbers, you know, you're often left with hospitals without any beds, wait times are extraordinary. And the reality is, too, is healthcare staff also get sick and need time off. So uh, this segment is so important uh, to understand how you can best prepare yourself for the uh, ever-evolving variants of COVID, new influenza strains, uh, but also just common sense preventative healthcare measures. And honestly, it just feels like everybody is sick with something right now. It is definitely going around. And I'm going to go a little off script here. Just I'm curious more for myself. Is it possible to catch more than one at the same time if like flu and COVID were running around at the same time? Such a sensible question, and the answer is yes. And unfortunately, those outcomes are poorer. We know that patients who are at risk of severe disease, and in some ways, you know, patients who are at risk of severe COVID are the same as influenza, are the same as RSV. Um, and if you get a double hit or, heaven forbid, a triple hit, you are sicker and more likely to end up in hospital and uh, and develop long-term consequences. So this is a huge point. When talking about these diseases, obviously the acute phase, that time when you're in bed with chills, fever, I mean, nobody wants that. That's unpleasant. Um, but what is poorly understood, and I think very poorly articulated by the medical community, we need to do a better job, is understanding that there are long-term consequences uh, with um, cases that are severe. I have many patients with a bout of influenza or RSV or COVID who end up with reduced quality of life. Uh, they have to go into long-term care homes. They have cardiac complications. So yes, infection with more than one is worse, but also infection with patients with comorbidities. So the more other diagnoses you have, so a patient with diabetes, with COPD, with asthma, when those get added, you know, that compounds their risk as well. And they not only develop severe disease, but their diseases can be exacerbated. So it's kind of like a tumbleweed um, right. that's falling down a hill, right? And so, I mean, I know as a population, we're all tired, we're all sick of COVID-19, but unfortunately, it is not sick of us. So how important is that vaccine this fall? So let's go through, I sort of package everything and I don't just focus on one. I talk about your respiratory protective package. Absolutely, let's begin with COVID. COVID is ever, it is a shape shifter. It is changing. And that's just the reality of science. You know, there's mutations that we have to chase and we have to match our vaccination formulations with a variant du jour. We are not back to square one. 
thankfully. Nobody wants to go back to March 2020. However, this newer variant is very different from what we've seen in the past year and a half. You know, we had quite a, a quiet time where patients would call and say, I tested positive. How long do I have to stay home and watch Netflix? Uh, whereas as of the past three weeks, um, I am seeing sicker patients who now I'm actually worried uh, for and, you know, about their ongoing uh, symptoms. So this strain is different enough that I'm not even calling the fall shot a booster. I'm calling an updated vaccine. But you can't just deal with COVID. You have to address uh, influenza, absolutely important. And we know that influenza vaccination for those patients um, significantly at risk, older patients, long-term care facilities are absolutely essential. But for younger patients too, to prevent transmission, right? A lot of what we do in terms of influenza vaccination is to be part of society and making sure that we're not passing on the virus to other patients. And then new to the game in terms of vaccination is RSV. It's not a new it's not a new virus. It's always been around. We just haven't had an opportunity to provide anything. Uh, hence the rhetoric. Now we have, uh, as of now, one RSV uh, approved vaccine for patients over sixty. Uh, and once again, you know, when you have so much of life that is unpredictable, if we have the chance to be proactive get versus reactive, I say embrace that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I realize you're talking that everybody should get the vaccine, but are there particular particular groups that should absolutely, like without question, be running for that vaccine? Yeah. So I, I assume that you're referring to COVID. Absolutely. NASI has delineated, well, NASI suggests that everybody you know, consider getting an updated uh, vaccine. I certainly promote that on mass in my clinic. But if you are older, if you are over 60, if you are living in a congregate living facility, if you're in long-term care, if you have a significant comorbid disease, asthma, diabetes, COPD, if you're on immunosuppressive medications, if you're on chemotherapy, if you're a transplant patient, and please do not forget pregnancy. Pregnancy is considered to be a high-risk uh, it's not a disease, but those patients are considered to be high risk and they should be lining up as well uh, for their updated COVID fall shot. And outside of vaccines, are there other steps we can be taking? I mean, I feel like we sh should know all of these, but it's always good to remind people of other steps you can take, right? Absolutely. What your mama or papa told you to do, eat well, get sleep. You know, these are all basic things. Make sure you're hydrated. Stay home if you're sick. It's not the time, you know, we're approaching, uh, unfortunately, holiday season as well, right? And if you are sick, simply stay home. Put on a mask if you feel that you're at risk. And hand washing. Candace, hand washing is not a COVID thing. It is just a general health thing. I was traumatized when we had a hand washing campaign. Uh, but make sure you're just practicing those good primary prevention measures as well. Just out of curiosity, are there differentiating symptoms so people can maybe know the difference themselves between flu, RSV, and COVID? That's such a, a smart question with an answer. And essentially, no. For RSV, oh no! <laughs> for RSV, we um, we probably see a bit more uh, wheezing, you know, when you're examining the patients. But that's a nuance, and the reality is, is sometimes we don't know. And unfortunately, in the community, we don't. Have testing for influenza and RSV. Uh, that's only done if a patient, heaven forbid, is hospitalized. So, I mean, that obviously has to change, but at present, it's a little bit of a, we don't know. So, you know what? The best way is to vaccinate yourself and increase your chances that you won't develop severe disease. All right. So what about the resources then um, available at Care2Know and, and how can Canadians stay informed about 
all of these respiratory health issues and obviously a host of other medical topics. So the other way the other way to prepare is to be informed. And instead of Googling, you know, Google's here to stay. I use it regularly. But when looking for health information, you want credibility. And care to know uh, it's credible. It's updated. You know, there's input from the medical community. I certainly work readily with the team behind it. And I trust them. And, you know, I think that in the um, in the atmosphere of misinformation, on mass, having a site that uh, you feel confident going to that you trust is so essential. Information, good information, is empowerment. Misinformation can be a detriment. All right. So, caretoknow.ca, correct? Absolutely. Caretoknow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via e- email. After enrolling, on caretoknow.ca, you will receive accurate and reliable information from trusted medical experts directly to your inbox. Uh, sign up today. You know, it's never too late. And uh, there's several topics that are ever expanding. All right, wonderful. And uh, I just want to let people know as well that we have a blog post over on whatshesaidtalk.com written by Dr. Christine Palme uh, that goes a little deeper into this subject if in case you wanted to learn a little bit more. Uh, and Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Been a long time, but I'm back in town. This time I'm not leaving without you. More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Ann Brody and... The pickings are getting kind of slim out there. Is this a result of the strike, Anne, or is this just because of the time of year we're in? There's a lot of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you real, really feel, Anne. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Sorry, my PR friends. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good time. I don't know if it's strike related because it seems too soon to be, but right. who knows? Who knows? All right. Well, you you have gone through uh, a lot this week to bring us the best of the best. So <laughs> let's start with uh, the most remote restaurant. This one actually I found fascinating. So tell us about that one. Yes, it is fascinating. Uh, it's about a, a chef named Paul Andreas Iska and his restaurant Cox, which is a two-star Michelin restaurant. Uh, one in Denmark. However, he's just set up a new one in Imanakak, Greenland, for heaven's sakes. It's a long flight. Then you have to climb up a very steep, rocky mountain to get there. (laughs) It seats 30 people. It does one meal a day. It's so expensive that nobody up there, the uh, indigenous people can't afford to eat there, which is a pity. Um, I mean, it's just so many, so many extremes about this place. I find the food extreme, if you ask me. It's all. About- I have to say, this is reminding me of a movie. Oh yeah, yes. What previewed was that movie. I can't think of the title, but yes. Well, that was based on the restaurant in Denmark that is now closed. So. 
I don't know. It's uh, seems that the Scandinavian countries really like to do things to an extreme, and they're, they're generally successful. Can you define expensive? I mean, I can't imagine. Like, what would it cost to $3, fly there? Three thousand dollars. What? Yeah. And okay. listen to this. It's all it's all uh, locally scavenged um, in Greenland. So that means seaweed, whale, um, lots of dishes with blood and fat. Uh, you know, it doesn't appeal to me. But I mean, the first night, the first guest flew from Hong Kong just to eat there. So that tells you what that it does attract people of a certain financial level, shall we say. Might be interesting to watch. I'm sure neither yourself or I or anybody listening will go. No, we're never going. <laughs> we're never going, Candace. But it's the food is so odd. It's so un, unusual to us. But people want to try something completely different. So it's an Arctic menu. Um they even they do a, a dish made out of crab shell that's been crushed, uh, you know, muskox, uh, whale skin. They have dishes made of whale skin. So you know, go have an adventure, enjoy yourself. I guess so. All right. Well, we'll, we'll watch. We'll watch from home. Uh, where is that? Is that on Netflix? It's a fascinating watch. No, it's on Via Play. Okay. Um, yes, on Halloween night. All right. Tell me about back home. Back Home is the film that's opening Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival here in Toronto uh, by Nisha Platzer. And it's it follows a theme, of course, because it's about uh, mental problems, psychological problems that people have. So Nisha actually uses the suicide of her brilliant young brother who who uh, killed himself when he was 15 years old. She was 11, found it terribly scarring. Anyway, she decides to make sense of it, if you can do that. She gathers all his private journals, and he was a, a very, very faithful writer. He wrote poetry, philosophy. He was very sophisticated in his thinking. And there was a, a passage that uh, it, he talked about sacrificing himself to the to ward off cultural sickness. So you know, there's a lot going on here. It's pretty intense, um, and it pops to Cuba and BC and the mountains. And uh, I will warn you though that there are strobing lights and special effects. It's all part of her artistic vision. But I'm not sure you can make sense out of these things. Anyway, it's it's a very personal film, very profound personal film. All right. Well, we have just enough time to touch on All the Light We Cannot See. And this one was yeah. hugely popular as a book. So uh, I suspect it's going to have a big uh, viewing audience. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It won the Pulitzer Prize. And it's about a blind French girl who... Um, is trying to navigate through Paris during the occupation. And there's a Nazi officer who is after her because he believes she has the Sea of Flames diamond. Now, her father, played by Mark Ruffalo, um, has prepared her for life in the city as a blind person. <clears throat> he built a miniature wooden city for her to feel so she knows her way around, so she can evade this person for you know, a certain amount of time, but there's so much that happens here. Um, and she, this person pursues her. She's a broadcaster as well. She's very young, but she broadcasts 
the way her father did. And he's trying to shut down any foreign radio from going anywhere in Europe. Um, but it's about the moral currents running through that era, the occupation, uh, and, you know, the arrival of the American bombers and, and trying to stay with it and calm <clears throat> and alive. So it's a, a very good story. It's, a, it's about hope and bravery, her bravery as a young girl, and it's, it's quite magnificent. All right. It's a four-parter on Netflix, November 2nd. I was wondering about that, actually, if it was going to be one movie or broken up. So that's perfect. You just answered my question. Uh, so thank you so much, Anne. You'll be back next week. I know I feel bad. You're going to have to go. You're going to have to go wade through a bunch <laughs> of other not so desirable films to find us the best. But we thank you for your service, Anne. <laughs> you are most welcome. You, I guess you moved on really easily. A little party never killed nobody. So we gonna dance until we drop. A little party never killed nobody. It's time for Smile Spectrum, where we explore various aspects of oral health and its impact on our overall well-being. And I'm delighted to have Dr. Mandeep Johal here today to discuss the ripple effects of sugar consumption really timely right now, especially during the Halloween season, because it's not just about cavities. Sugar can have far-reaching impacts on our gut health, sleep, and so much more. Dr. Johal, thank you for joining me today for this incredibly timely interview. Thank you so much for having me. So we often hear about the dangers of sugar when it comes to tooth decay, but can you explain how excess sugar consumption affects our gut health and can lead to other health issues? Yeah, for sure. I mean, think about when we have like for during the holidays, especially Halloween, what we end up doing is we overconsume sugar. And a, like a fun-sized chocolate bar has about 10 grams of sugar. Children shouldn't have more than 21 grams of sugar. So many, and especially really young children, but it, it it's going to affect your gut biome. And sometimes what that end, ends up happening is when your gut is compromised, it's going to affect maybe the uptake of calcium or other crucial minerals and vitamins as well, right? So we got to look out for that. And then also is related to periodontal health, your gum disease, because now we're creating more inflammation everywhere. And with Halloween just around the corner, uh, many children and adults, I can't even keep Halloween candy in my house before Halloween. Same. <laughs> so we all indulge in those sugary treats. That's a rule um, in our house. No sugar early. <laughs> we can't bring candy into our house. Last minute, last minute for sure. So what's the connection, though, between sugar and sleep disturbances, especially in children? Yeah, so... Well, our blood, well, especially with children, which we already see, um, is their blood sugar levels are going to spike. So we see that fluctuation happening. And think about when you go trick-or-treating. I wish it was earlier, but it's usually later on. And for some little ones, especially, it's usually after dinner. Uh, and now what we've done is we've created this fluctuation in their blood level, with sugar blood level. And then now we're going to disrupt their sleep. And now they're going to go to bed late. And there is actually a finding um, with increase in night terrors as well, with the increase of sugar intake. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. And I actually want to go back to a point you made about 21 grams of sugar. That's per day, I'm assuming? Yeah. Does that include things like um, 
like fruit as well that we get naturally occurring sugars? I know that that's the hard part. I mean, there's sugar in even like the organic red pot of sauce. There's going to be there's literally sugar in everything. But yeah, like we're not meant to have that much sugar, especially children. Even like the little juice boxes can have up to 19 grams of sugar. I'm like, well, there goes your sugar intake for the whole day. But that's the that's what um, is supposed to be 21 grams. Okay. So what are some practical tips then and strategies parents can use to help their children enjoy Halloween? Because we don't want to ruin the day for them. Uh, But how can we still have it be fun and not cause a lot of damage to their teeth or their health? Well, I have young children as well, so I can't uh, dare take away Halloween from them. Um, so yeah, I let them, we do trick-or-treating, we go and they're like, my, my youngest son is like, I'm going to kill it this year for Halloween. Like he's so pumped. He wants to get like a bigger bag. And so we get all that. But then when we come home, um, we will let them indulge in a few for sure. Um, but then we make sure that, you know, they brush their teeth or what we make sure is depending on what time we go trick-or-treating, we make, it's usually a little bit earlier because we want to go before it gets dark. Try to have a meal, we, have a meal and then have some chocolates around it. The worst thing you can possibly do is snack with the candy all day, right? Or all evening or the next day. So I let my kids have a few or a little bit more than few during Halloween, and then make sure that you brush and really floss their teeth well before they go to bed. And what about like in the days following? Do you dole it out or how do you deal with that? Because some people actually have a candy fairy that comes along and takes it all away after a few days. Uh, what's your solution to that? that? I mean, or <laughs> you know, you know what? It, sometimes like what we'll do is we'll trade in the candies for a toy right? We just got to be creative. And we can't make it feel like it's um, like taking your away candy. It's almost like we're creating this negative connotation around it. Just don't make a big fuss of it. Just show them there's other alternatives. Like we make homemade gummy bears, super easy, super simple to make. We make like gummy worms. My kids love them, you know, but if obviously they're going to crave something even sugar, like something that has a lot more sugar in it. But you can make homemade um, trail mix, homemade so many great, so many great alternatives. So I feel like we shouldn't really be saying we're taking this away from you. Just approach it in a way that, hey, guess what? We've got something even better. Let's get you a toy, right? So we do that a lot with the kids as well. And one of the things I've seen that I think is really entertaining is I've seen people take the candies and bake with it and share it with, you know, friends and neighbors afterwards. So they'll make, you know, cupcakes with M&Ms in them or things like that. So you, there is a, the possibility to be creative for sure. There is, but we're just still distributing candies even yeah, later Yeah, but to on. other people, but to other people. <laughs> you can just get rid of it. It's not a crime. Just get rid of it because it's creating more havoc than good. So it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think know. I don't think good. I'm ready. I don't think I'm ready for it. My kids are already done Halloween. Uh, but, you know, we, st- we still have it in the house for the younger kids for sure. So let's talk about the oral hygiene, though, because obviously kids are excited about Halloween. They're not excited about brushing their teeth or flossing or any of those things. But, you know, you you work with young kids. You have young kids. How do you get them to make this a habit, especially, you know, because it's not just Halloween. We're also heading into the holidays and again, loads of sugar in, in our future. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a tough one, but I think it's really on the parents. I would say 
a child as old as even 12, we should still be monitoring them how they're brushing their teeth. You watch them brush their teeth, especially like an older child, like a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old. But then you make sure, then you check to make sure the back molars are brushed well, because that's where the most likely you get cavities on the back teeth. I think it's still really important. I know we're busy, but I still think it's really important that we're really involved with our children to see how they're brushing and flossing, because look at the long-term back. Look, look at the long-term consequences, I should say, is does a child, do you really want to bring your child into the dental office, getting those cavities filled, right? So if we can avoid it. Let's just take that extra time now, every night or every other night, even um, making sure they're flossing and brushing, right? If we do it, maybe do it with them. Um, but toddlers is a whole new ball game there. It's more challenging, but we just got to do it because you do not want cavities on little ones. Do whatever it takes. Prevent, prevention is the key, right? And you hit on something really important. You know, aside from obviously the health implications, there's a financial implication to all of this as well. So it's it's yeah. much easier to stay on top of it, uh, you know, instead of having to get cavities filled and things like that. So let's talk about those post-Halloween dental checkups. Um, let's, you know, should parents be booking in for a checkup after Halloween within so much time? Yeah, I mean, so everybody has like a different checkup schedule because most people are on like a four month or six month or nine month recall for their cleanings. But I would say maintain that, you know, don't push it. If you know it's approaching soon, definitely don't push it. Um, and just getting in for the routine health care is going to prevent more cavities for sure because we always review what the brushing and hygiene is like right? It's always a review for the parents, always a review for the children as well. Um, and then we also review other reasons kids are getting cavities. It's not just because of the sugar. It's also going to be because we talked before about mouth breathing and poor gut health, right? So the sugar is not helping the gut. All right. Excellent. Uh, you are always sharing great information uh, all over the place. Of course, on your uh, familydentalguelph.com, you have a blog. Uh, but where can people keep up with you on social media? Um, on my Instagram handle at Dr. Mandeep Johal. I have tons of information and videos um, for parents, um, children, and adults on, on everything I provide at my office, all the services. Um, and it's not just about how to brush your teeth and floss. It's more, it's about everything, holistic of you from head to toe um, and sleep, really really comes down to that. It's just really important to me. That's really what I love about this series with you is that we're covering, it's not just about cavities, it's about your overall health. So that's perfect. And I just want to let people know as well that you're going to have a blog post up on what she said talk.com about this very topic. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. So we gonna dance until we More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. We could all use a little more laughter in our lives, which is why I'm excited to have Toronto comedian Tamara Chevon with me today, who is celebrating her 10th anniversary in the world of stand-up comedy this November. Tamara has not only made a name for herself in the comedy community, but has also recently released a new comedy album titled Table Wine. She joins me now. Tamara, welcome to What She Said. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. So 10 years, that's a big uh, occasion. So can you share with me maybe a favorite moment or experience from the past decade? Yeah, well, actually, I started stand-up for the first time in China. I lived in Beijing for a long time, for three years. So I started my career there. So my biggest achievement was really just doing it in a country that I didn't even really know much about. And so I, my first ever show was at the Hilton with 500 people there. And I was three months in the stand-up comedy. So that was wild. That is crazy to me that you started your career in a foreign country. I mean, people talk about tough crowds all the time, but that's incredible. Good for you. Yeah, it was wild. I moved there to teach as a global studies professor. And then comedy was the, the outlet that we all had to be able to be like expat comedians or expat people and going out and being watching these comedians. So I went to comedy shows every week. And that's kind of how I started getting into it. So can you tell me then about how the album came to be and what inspires you to create it? Yeah. So I was doing a lot of jokes for a long time. I was doing jokes all around the city, um, moving around, doing them all across Ontario. I started my first tour that went all the way to North Bay, all the way to Sarnia, all these different places. And I started thinking like, maybe I should have all of this on an actual album because I love Dane Cook. Dane Cook was the first person that I ever listened to comedy on an album, really, in like before I was a child. So like, um, when I was listening to Dane Cook, I was like, oh, this is something that's really crazy. He did that all by himself. So I thought, hey, maybe I should try to do this too. So I did it independently, went out of my way to create this album and put all of my best work that I had for eight years on it for my first album. Then my second album, I released a year and a half after. So then how have your experiences influenced your comedy and shape your perspective as a comedian? Given that you spent a significant amount of chi in ch time in China and you majored in international diplomacy. <laughs> I mean, you could probably potentially solve all the world's problems here with comedy. I know. I do like to have a little bit of influence of political things in my comedy. It's a lot of observational things coming from my perspective, but... I think that a lot of the things that I go through on a daily basis, especially like I grew up and not maybe the most affluent area, <laughs> right? I moved a lot to be able to escape a lot of those things. And so moving away to China and moving away to these different places really helped shape the way that my comedy works. It really helped shape the way that my perspective was able to change over the course of the years. And so really important for me to actually have my comedy going the way that it does is the experience that the experiences that I have, right? But being a woman in comedy, I've, I've had I've had previous uh, female comedians on the show, and and we've talked about the hurdles that you go through. <laughs> You're also a black woman who yes. was in China. <laughs> I mean, tell me, like, was this incredibly challenging for you, or you know, did you just find it maybe an easier way to step into it? I found that it was very difficult in the beginning because you don't want all of your comedy to always be specifically about the fact that you're a woman or the fact that you're black, but that is a lot of my experience. And so finding a way to change the narrative of like how that's presented, I feel like a lot of people want to have like black comedy for black comedians, women comedy for women comedians. And that's not what it is. It's like your experience within what you are and showing people how you perceive it instead of kind of attacking the other side and being like, you should do this better. So that's kind of what I use my comedy for, showing people how it comes across to me. And then that natural would be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Or maybe, oh, that's not really the way that I want it to be perceived. 
And then that kind of changes, I think, the narrative a lot better than being like, you do this, you do this, and then getting everybody to like be sorry for me. I think it's better to make light of a situation and have everyone understand what they do on their own. <laughs> but as if you're not impressive enough, I mean, we're only, you know, four, four minutes and a little bit into this interview. I'm already in awe of you. But you also speak Mandarin. Yeah. So have you ever incorporated this skill into your comedy routines at all? I have not um, incorporated like the actual language as much. I used to do a lot of jokes that had a little Mandarin punchline, but um, I do have a lot of experiences in my jokes that I talk about with learning Mandarin and how difficult it was. And I had to learn because for the first six months, I had no idea what I was eating. And I have a joke about how I found out one day that what I thought was a brisket sandwich was actually donkey that I was eating the whole time. Oh, no. <laughs> when I realized I should probably figure out what it is that I'm saying. And pointing at. And so that's kind of how I started learning Mandarin, which was a very funny way when I was just like, oh, I guess I don't know what I'm eating. And then from there, I started making more jokes about the fact that like living in China, uh, the fact that people are just always like, what is happening here? Because no one immigrates really to Beijing, right? So me walking around in China was a very jarring experience for a lot of small children. <laughs> well, you're incredible. I want to know what you're up to next. Where can we find you? Uh, I'm going to be celebrating my 10-year anniversary, and um, that's actually a huge accomplishment. I can't believe it's been 10 years at Comedy Bar in Toronto for a show called Chaotic Good that I've been running for two years. That's the two-year anniversary of that show, the 10-year anniversary of my comedy uh, career. So I started my first time on my birthday, so it's going to be a birthday celebration and a full celebration of comedy all together in one. So, and uh Basically, you can find me on Instagram at Teamair, T-E-E-M-A-I-R, and Twitter. And then from there, you can check out my albums, Table Wine and Purse Wine. All right. Excellent. That's what I was going to ask you next is where can we find that album? But you've already answered the question. Tamara, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I can't wait to actually see you live someday. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tickets on me for sure for you. <laughs> thank you, Tamara. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.